What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench, and happy Kwanzaa to you. Today is the fourth day of Kwanzaa. We're celebrating and acknowledging Ujamaa cooperative economics to build and maintain our own stores, our own shops, and other businesses, and to profit from them together. Come on, black people. Celebrate Kwanzaa with me. We hope you had a safe and a happy holiday and are still taking some time off to enjoy a little R&R. On today's episode, Pastor Sam and Malcolm David round out our Conversation Between Friends mini-series. They're talking about progressive liberalism, whiteness, friendship, and trust building. In their conversation, you'll hear more about each of their families of origin and the strategies they utilize to maintain relationship with their family members while also holding them accountable for some of the more challenging aspects of their belief systems and their ways of being. We hope that you'll enjoy the conversation. But before that, please remember this Thursday... We will celebrate the end of the year the only way we know how with an episode solely dedicated to an altar call. Somebody that's going to sit their ass on this bench. Listen in as we recap 2020 and all the things we thought we cared about at the start of the year. Anybody remember Mr. Peanut faking his death and trying to make us think that he was patient zero of the COVID-19 crisis? Does anybody remember how much we cared about Megan and Harry leaving the royal family? Yeah, me either. Nevertheless, listen in on Thursday for the year-end altar call extravaganza and to hear from a few of your fellow listeners who joined in the altar call celebration and placed some new butts on the bench. Also, if you happen to be in the state of Georgia, early voting continues today, this week. Get off of your couch, put on your mask, and head out to the polls and vote for the candidates who will do the least harm to black people, do the least harm to people of color, least harm to queer folks and poor folks. Just get out there and vote your ass off. I mean, your ass off. You were not kept. You know what I mean? Just go vote. <laughs> go vote, y'all, for real. If voting matters and voting does make a difference in our world. It, it matters now more than ever. Do not let the good work of Stacey Abrams, Fair Fight Georgia, and so many other people and organizations go to waste. Go vote. Do your part. It is the least you can do. And trust me, y'all, I'm somebody who did not always vote. I was jaded with the rest of them. I thought that my vote didn't make a difference. And some days I still feel like it doesn't make a difference. But now more than ever, these things matter. We, the last four years have taught us Republicans don't have our best interest in mind and that they're most interested in maintaining power at all costs. Those of you who listen in the state of Georgia, you have an opportunity to make a huge difference. The candidates who are on the ticket have made their intentions clear, have made their desires clear. We know who they are. Go out there and vote for the folks who espouse a vision of the world that matches your own, that matches the vision you hear talked about on this podcast. Please go vote. And finally, thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review and even subscribe to this podcast. If you still haven't done so, take a little moment right now and hit the subscribe button right there up top. Do it right now, now. Do it, come on, right, right now. <laughs> and if you happen to be listening via Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a review and give a little rating. We really appreciate it. And without further ado, Sam, Malcolm, y'all go on and handle your business and get into it. I'm thinking back over the span of our seven years of knowing each other. We've had conversations about politics and about a lot of different stuff. I would just walk in your office sometimes when we were both yeah. at Candler yeah. and we would just talk. Yeah. Now we find ourselves colleagues again. 
at another institution. Well, actually, this is the our third. third. Uh, the third, man. I, for real, I, my career is intertwined with yours for, I think, the rest of my life. This is now the third stop. Yeah, you can't that, get rid of me. <laughs> no, you can't get rid of me. <laughs> we, we can't get rid of each other. There you now. go. There's a reason for that, yeah. you know? I'm going to tell you, I'm usually skeptical of folks in general, but I'm usually skeptical of white folks. I think I want to say that in a different way. Because I don't know that I'm skeptical of white folks. But there is always a healthy dose of skepticism, especially well-to-do white folks or white folks who are more progressive and really want, they really have a passion or desire to, to see meaningful change in the world. I think that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But anytime I hear or see that, I have a healthy dose of skepticism about how folks will go about facilitating or being involved in that evolution, right? Yeah. And I think over the past seven years, what I have discerned about you is that you're not one of the white folks who's motivated by a certain level of, of I would say, guilt or shame that is saying I must do something to deal with the guilt or the things that I'm dealing with. And I talked about this with Katie. I think there's a genuine way in which you're saying, as I become more aware of my whiteness, what does that mean, not just for me, but for the relationships that I currently have and for the spaces that I currently occupy? And I think that causes you to hesitate before you speak in certain settings, in certain rooms. It causes you to reflect before you dive in. It causes you to say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't talk in this meeting. Maybe I shouldn't talk in this space. Maybe I shouldn't say something here. I think the challenge for me is that I appreciate that. While at the same time, I don't ever think anybody should be like muzzled or stifled or feel like they can't speak or say anything. And so it's kind of like, you know, I, I appreciate that because it shows a certain level of intentionality and awareness on your part of who you are in this world and how that affects the spaces that you navigate and the relationships that you have. But on the back end of that, I'm like... I would never want anyone to feel muzzled. You understand what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, we've never had this conversation. We've never talked about any of these things. So talk to me about yeah. what you're thinking about as I say this stuff. I, man, yeah, I feel like you're calling us into a really kind of deep conversation here. And I think you've, you've hit on something that I don't think I've ever uh, thought about or named in quite the uh, terms you just did. And so I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. It was funny to hear you talk about how skeptical you can be of progressive white people. Over the years, I have become like really skeptical of, uh, of progressive white people. Let me also acknowledge that I'm not just saying this about other people, I'm saying this about myself as well. I'm implicated in this. I worry about the motivations that white people sometimes have when they are trying to get involved in social justice issues, racial justice issues. I, I think oftentimes the, the muscle memory kind of kicks back in and our desire for control, our desire for prestige, our desire for recognition, our desire to recenter ourselves in the narrative 
just continues to pop up over and over and over again. I'll, I'll give an example of, of this. Maybe it'll be helpful to, to just sort of name it. Over the summer, a number of, of dear and I think very well-intentioned white friends of mine post things on social media in response to the, the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I mean, there was so much happening this summer. And I saw a lot of folks who, from my vantage point, made big claims and big statements on social media. And there was a part of me that celebrated my white friends suddenly really, I, I think, for the first time, acknowledging and truly wrestling with um, these issues that have, have plagued our country since its very founding, right? I mean, even, even before then. There was this um, excitement that, okay, like maybe white people like want to finally do something to fix these issues that we have at best stood by and at worst have actively helped to perpetuate. There was just this part of me that kept thinking, man, it's so easy to just write something on Facebook. Like, what, what are you doing? Where are you spending your money? How are you spending your time? After you're done hitting the post button on your phone or your computer or whatever, like, how are you getting your hands dirty? Like, what, what's the work that you're doing? And, it, and it's, not my, it's not my place to tell somebody else what they should be doing. It's not my place to say activism looks like this or you know, meaningful engagement has to take this form. I mean, I think you can do a ton of different things and that be worthwhile and helpful and beneficial work. But I, I just, I am skeptical of white people who wanna talk a lot uh, and don't wanna do a lot. And I think for me, I'm skeptical of, of folks in that same regard who are anxious already to do something involving minoritized populations without doing the initial work of addressing other white folks, hmm. of addressing Uncle Bubba yeah. or Nana or Granddad who says things or who has certain opinions, who, you, who folks have lived in a world and a reality where they've seen the toxicity of this type of paradigm and supremacy and whiteness. And when they have their awakening, it's like, oh, you know, I want to, I, I, I want to help. I want to help the minoritized population. I want to help the, and, and that's good. And I, and I want folks to have that. But when you, when you sit around the Thanksgiving table, yeah, that's where you do your work. When you, when y'all are in the when you're in the backyard with with uncle or cousin or so and so, that's when you do your work, and yeah. that's the and for many white folk, that is the most difficult space yeah. in which to do that work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think some folks escape to, well, you know, I'm going to go to the protest and I'm going to be visible and I'm going to hold signs and yeah. and they view that as getting their hands dirty, but that's yeah. not that's an escape. That's yeah. an outlet. You're running away yeah. from what you could be addressing because I'm not at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah. I'm not in the backyard. You know, and so and so for me when I say I have a healthy dose of skepticism, I think that's where I that's where I am cuz I'm I, I see progressive white folks who are who are visible in these movements and I'm wondering are you this passionate at the Thanksgiving table? Are you are you talking to, you know, folks within your family who who all are voting for Trump or who all are doing all of this stuff in in addressing these issues there? And I'm not I'm not projecting this onto you. I'm not saying this is you, but this is this yeah. is where th that's where my skepticism lies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think the the thought that comes to mind for me when I hear you say that is, 
white people are willing to do the things that are emotionally cathartic for themselves. Mm -hmm. But when there's actual hard work to do, when your relationship with a loved one or your, you know, your emotional comfort, you know, as you said, at the, at the family dinner table, when that gets called into question, then all of a sudden, no, you walk away and you pretend like it's no big deal. By virtue of the spaces that I occupy, the family that I'm a part of, the people that are in my orbit, I do actually have a a really direct opportunity to interact with Trump supporters with, you know, people who think that racism isn't an issue in this country anymore, right? Like those are, those are my family members. Some Mm -hmm. of the people that I love most dearly on this earth are people who I know voted for Donald Trump, who I know think racism ended in 1965. Right. My sister and I have very uh, kind of similar political leanings. And so we, we talk a lot about how difficult it can be to interact with members of our family. Leading up to the election this year, um, we committed to one another. Let's both have hard conversations with our parents yeah. and say exactly what we think and say, I love you, but this is unacceptable for these reasons. Yeah. And we sort of schemed and strategized and talked about that um, and tried to do that in a way that was loving, but also didn't leave room for bullshit, yeah. right? Because I think, the, I mean, the if you're going to err on one side or the other, I think white people oftentimes err on not offending. And so my, my sister and I were like, we're going to err on saying exactly what we think. And if that comes across a little too harsh or whatever, that's fine. But that's the side we want to err on. Don't want to accommodate this. Don't want to apologize for it. Don't want to make space for nuance. Like, no, Donald Trump is a racist bigot, period. It is morally unacceptable for you to support him for that reason, period. Most people will turn that off in my presence. I'll never see that side of some folks. Hmm. because there's a certain level of comfort in a space with you as a, as another white male than there is with me as an African-American male. Yeah. If Brandon was here, we, we could have a whole conversation about a certain level of double consciousness and being very aware of being this way in one space and being another way in another space. And I'm not naive that that also happens uh, within white families and white communities and white things. And so the reality is that work has to live with you because you already have, and when I say you, I'm speaking about uh, white folks in general who are doing this work. That work has to live with you because you have established the relationships that will allow people to be themselves in that space. Yeah. And you are able to address these things that I will never see because people will be guarded and they will never show these things to me. Yeah. And so and so I'm very aware of the work that I believe that white folks have to do. And if you didn't show up at any protest, what are you saying at home at the dinner table? How are you addressing the underbelly of whiteness that still exists within our country but is not visible, but is visible to you because it still exists in a way that you are exposed to it and I'm not? the more dangerous side of this is that there's this assumption that like one white person can say something else really hateful to another white person, assuming that that person deep down also shares that view, right? I've experienced that and and seen that in the last few years in ways that I think are just really just surprising to me. And I think the, the takeaway for me in that is to recognize how big the problem is. I think when I when I hear stuff like that, my natural instinct for a long time has been to try to 
find an explanation for it. To say, oh, this person feels this way. Um, the, they say this thing, but if I really got them to think about it, they would feel differently. Or they, don't, they, don't, they couldn't possibly really mean that, you know? And I think the last few years have taught me like, no, they do mean that. No, that is exactly what's wrong with our country, with our society. And to not give people a pass, I think is something that I've really been trying to lean into and trying to, to, to grow into. Not giving them a pass, for me, that means not just in the way that you process it, but in the interaction itself. Yeah. I use my mom as an example because, number one, I know she doesn't listen <laughs> uh, to the podcast. But either either way, it wouldn't matter. I, I remember in 2016, I took my mom on a cruise, and we, we just kind of had fun, gave her a break. And we ended up having this conversation. My mom is a Christian pastor, very evangelical, southern, conservative, religious view, which oftentimes doesn't leave room for any other view. And somehow we started having a conversation about Islam. Hmm. And my mom has all of these thoughts or assumptions about Islam and Muslims. And it's like many very conservative Southern religious views. You know, Jesus is the only way, nothing against Muslims or Islam, but basically they're going to hell because they don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And in that conversation, I had to stop her. I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, what do you know about Islam? Like, how, how are we having this conversation? You don't even know anything about Islam. And she's like, well, I, I don't know much, but I know that Jesus is the only way. Sitting here on the cruise ship, I wouldn't give an inch because I was like, no, I'm not, you're not going to do this. You know, maybe it frustrated her, and I think she she did start to get frustrated. She was like, look, I'm done talking about it. You know, she didn't want to talk about it anymore, and that's okay, too. But what we're not going to do is I'm not going to sit here and let you have this outlandish conversation about something that you don't even know about and project onto this whole group of people something that is not accurate or true. Of And so that's when I go back to talking about the work of white folks. And not giving, even in saying not giving folks a pass, I'm hoping that that's not just in their processing of these things, but it's also in the moment that white folks will say at that dinner table, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? That they'll do that work in the moment and push back on things in the moment. I feel like I have four parents. My parents are divorced and both are remarried. You definitely do have four parents. Uh, so I was having a conversation with one of them about the election and they said to me, well, you know, the truth is, regardless of who's in the White House, my life really isn't going to change a whole lot. You know, like I'm, I'm still going to be okay. And they were saying that as sort of a, a way of reassuring themselves, right? That like that the world is going to be fine, that they're going to be fine. And something about that just really struck me the wrong way. And so I said, you know, look, that's great that you feel like by virtue of your position in life and where you live and what you look like, and what skin color you have and what your name is, you feel like your life isn't gonna change regardless of who's in the White House. But that's not true for huge numbers of people. And maybe it would be helpful for you the next time you vote, or the next time you think about whose campaign to support or how you wanna act in this country that you might think about people whose lives do depend on who's in the White House. One of the struggles that I have is in feeling like those conversations are so small and that progress comes so slowly 
I've realized as I've tried to lean into that work more and more, I feel like I'm measuring progress in inches and not miles. I think it's important to know that incremental progress is still progress. And even if you are measuring progress in inches, it's still progress. Hmm. And the nature of this work might mean that you get to the end of your life and you have a foot of progress where you wanted a mile of progress. And, and that only highlights the complexity of this work, hmm. the difficult nature of the evolution of human beings. I don't know if my mom's worldview of Islam has changed in the five years that we had this conversation. But I do know every time we have this conversation, I'm going to push her, especially if she comes with the same nonsense each time. And maybe that in conjunction with the other work that I'm doing to highlight inclusion, acceptance, um, the other work that I'm doing to highlight interreligious work will nudge her closer to a different worldview. The reality is my mom at 66 years old will likely die believing some of the same things that she believed when she was 15. But don't set yourself up to be disappointed because you're accomplishing inches instead of miles. It's still progress. Hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but that sounds like a good spot for a break. Let me jump in right quick and then I'll get back out the way. Hey there, friend. Thank you so much for listening to The Mourner's Bench. In case you didn't know, The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media. Theolab is a podcast network and media collective committed to connecting unlikely conversation partners to highlight what's possible when we unlearn fear, embrace difference, and live with courage. Take a moment to visit their website, theolabmedia.com, to learn more and to sign up for Theolab's monthly newsletter. That's truly the best way to stay up to date and to be the first to know about what's happening in the lab. Again, that's theolabmedia.com. All right. I'm sorry. I'm going to get out y'all's way, Malcolm. I'm going to get out your way too, Sam. Y'all going to get back into it. I know that you grew up in a single parent household and I grew up in a single parent household as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, have you thought at all about how that affects your relationships with other people, how that affects your friendships, how that affects your working relationships? Like, do you see a lingering impact on your life today from the, the home that you grew up in? Definitely. On some level, definitely. Not necessarily just growing up in the single parent household, but the dynamics of the relationship that I had with those two parents. Hmm. I think I could have grown up in a single parent household and had certain relationships with both of those parents that would not have had such an impact on the way relationships unfold. I lived with my mom. Of course, my mom raised me. The relationship that I had with my dad, I think is one of the reasons why I automatically initially have walls up in every relationship that I enter in, friendship, relationship, whatever. Hmm. Because as a child, my dad would make certain commitments. Dad would say, I'm coming to the games or I'm going to be there or, you know, and, and, and he wasn't. Now, later when my dad died, some things were really apparent to me in the effects of him not being able to keep his promises, what, what that meant for him. 
But in the moment as a child, yeah, I yeah. only knew what it meant for me. Yeah. Um, and I think I resolved within myself that I'm not going to give away a part of myself to allow people to hurt me in relationships or friendships. Mm. And so if, if you are regarded as a friend or someone significant in my life, you're going to have to do the work of proving that you're worthy of that level of hmm. commitment and trust. And that's why when I do have those friendships, they're really lifelong. Hmm. Even if we disagree, even if we butt heads, even if we have a shouting match, I know at the core of our beings, we are there for each other. I know that if I'm here for David, I'm here for David. We might disagree about an election or, or where the couch should go on the wall, and it might devolve into yelling and shouting, and I might say, this is a function of your whiteness and you need to get out of your head. But at my core, I know that you are genuinely a part of a relationship because of who we are and the connection that we have made. And nothing will ever break that. I don't care how we fight. Because in my opinion, if something can destroy a friendship, it was never really a friendship. Hmm. So for me, I have these walls up. People got to work. You're going to have to work. I'm not saying that I make people jump through hoops and everything. But I keep people at arm's length. Yeah, I have walls up. And they're usually not coming down. If they do come down, they're down for life. Hmm. You know? Hmm. I've been hurt in terms of this ministerial journey and I've, and I've made excuses for the people that were hurting me. They were saying, well, maybe, you know, mm. this and that, and that because I brought that wall down and because I brought that wall down, it was like, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I understand you. Mm. If something happens and you respond or you do something in a certain way and it's a function of your whiteness, I'm going to be like, oh, Lord, this is white man David right here. But I still love David. Like, you still David. You're never not going to be David. Getting back to your question, because I took a long route to get here. This is usually what you do. Uh, <laughs> Flip the script, this man. This is usually what you do. But no, no, no. Um, the reason that I am the way that I am is because of the relationship that I had with my dad. That relationship made me want to make sure I was in control over the emotional access that people have to me. And I don't ever want to be sitting in my own head hurt and distraught because I allowed somebody access who really wasn't, who, who really didn't have my best intentions at heart. And so they absolutely affect the way that I enter into friendships and relationships. What about you? When we, when we talk about that, how has, how, how has being raised in a single parent home affected your friendships and relationships? I think it's had a, a huge impact on on me, and its impact has evolved over time. So, my dad was the one who choose who who chose to leave when I was a kid. I saw him uh, twice a week, every week when I was a kid. Um, we would get together with him Thursday night for dinner, and then uh, after church on Sunday, like all Sunday afternoon, all Sunday night was like our our day with dad. And he was very much around and very much like physically present, but I felt like he was really emotionally distant from us. 
And for a long time, I was hurt by what I felt like was an emotional distance between the two of us. As I've gotten older, I think I have become more sympathetic to him as a person. And I realized that perhaps what I received or felt as distance was actually him being unsure of whether I wanted his love. I don't want to assume for him that it's shame. And, we, and we've never had that conversation. I don't, I don't know if that's the word that he would use. Um, I wonder if he feels bad about the hurt that he caused. I, I think he probably does. But the ironic part of that is like, I don't necessarily hold that against him, right? Like as yeah. an adult, I look back and realize, you know what? My parents' marriage probably was not the greatest and they did the best they could and it was time for them to split, you know, and, and that's okay. So there's no reason to have shame or guilt about that. You know, it, it's a sad circumstance, but it, it is what it is. What's interesting to me is that I've I've realized just in the last few years, how similar I am to my father in terms of not being sure that other people want my love. Hmm. And that's been a really interesting and a hard realization. I think deep down, what comes across as maybe being really guarded is actually me saying to myself, does this person really care enough to want this from you? I was thinking about that when you were, again, going back to the comment you made very early in this conversation about how um, it appears as though sometimes I can be really guarded or sort of um, choose my words really carefully. The connecting point for me, part of it is, yes, I'm trying to learn how to get out of others' way. And I think as a, a straight white man, that part of my identity is always in the room, right? I'm, I, I walk into every room feeling privileged, feeling like I'm fully invited to be myself. I don't have to check any of that ever. And I've become much more aware of that over the last few years. And I think, you know, part of my trying to be thoughtful, trying to be slow in speech, trying to listen more than I, than I talk is a response to that. And I, I hope that's healthy and it's helpful and it leaves space for others to be themselves. But I think I'm now just in the last, you know, maybe six months or so beginning to realize there's also a part of me that I think deep down feels anxious about bringing my full self, wondering if that measures up, wondering if somebody else really cares about that or really wants that from me. And the truth is, I mean, you know, the, the interesting part about all of that is that you can't really be in relationship with somebody. You can create all the space in the world for them to be their authentic selves. And that's, and that's great and good and necessary. But if you're not bringing your full self, then you're never really going to have a, a, a deep relationship, right? And so that's been kind of an interesting realization for me. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's a fairly recent one as well. You know, I think I, for a long time, I have been slow to tear down barriers. So I, I, I resonate with some of what you were saying there. But I think too, a big part of it for me is that I'm, I'm realizing that maybe I carry some of that internal insecurity, some of that hurt that I think maybe my, my dad had inside, right? Like he didn't feel like it was, he had the right to say, I love you, son, or whatever it was. I find myself thinking a lot, do I have the right to say this? My family upbringing has in the past and continues now to have, you know, a huge impact on, on how I interact with folks. And as I think about a conversation that we had, hmm, I think in this space, uh, not too long ago, 
when we were talking about just things that were going on. And I think you started, you started talking about being hopeful. And I was like, wait, no, wait. And I stopped. And I was like, ain't no hope, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I wrestled with, with the impact of what Christianity has on the delegitimizing of the real lived experiences and the ramifications of those experiences of folks. And like I'm, I'm hesitant of any quick move to, to reconciliation or forgiveness or hopefulness without first living in the reality of the tension or yeah. the reality of the emotion of those uh, folks who have experienced injury on some level. And I feel like religion wants to move us quickly to some hopeful resolution. Religion wants to take us from conflict, you know, to kumbaya. Yeah. There's a book that we read uh, in seminary called As We Forgive. I forget who the author is. It really speaks about Rwanda and the, the, the opposing factions in the Rwanda that led to the genocide in the early 90s but it dealt with the reconciliation efforts post-genocide. And I remember reading and even watching a video with one family that literally this, this person who was involved in murdering half of a, another person's family was asking for reconciliation. And, the, and the, the daughter, the daughter basically, she came, she listened, and she said, you know, I'm not ready. She said, no, I'm not, I'm not ready to forgive. I'm not going to forgive. Maybe one day I will be able to, but not now. And I was okay with that. In all of my Christian sensibilities, I was okay with that. I was like, that's fine. That is okay. That is her, that's her space. And then as a part of my Christian reality, my pastoral sensibilities, it says, oh, come on, you know, now this is not the way of Jesus. You know, <laughs> we must forgive. <laughs> You know, yeah, we, we have yeah. to forgive, you know, all yeah. of those things. I, I think about Dylan Roof and how yeah. days after yeah. the the yeah. massacre in Charleston, yeah. that family members stood and said, I forgive you. And I think that's their right. But I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> this quick move toward yeah. reconciliation doesn't allow us to sit in the tension of the reality of the trauma yeah. and, to, and, to, and to humanize the experiences that other folks are going, are going for. Now, I'm not saying you were trying to do that in a moment. I don't think you were trying to move on. But I heard you talk about being hopeful in, in this almost kind of kumbaya-ish language. And I was like, uh-uh, no, we ain't going there yet. <laughs> The truth is it's a lot easier for someone who doesn't feel like viscerally bodily feel the pain of racism day in and day out to say, let's move towards reconciliation, yeah. right? Like that, that's an easy, that's an easy thing for me to, to say. I'll acknowledge, I, I don't know the answer to this. It is something that I wrestle with and that I, I struggle with a lot. I think the the first I mean the first thought that comes to mind for me is reconciliation is not possible without justice. In my mind, like that has to be the starting point. You know, you can't say, "Oh, well, we're going to you know, find ways to come together, but we're not going to change 
the terms of how we interact with each other. No, if our interactions have been marked by imbalances in, in power, if they've been marked by violence from one group against the other, a complete disregard for one of the other, reconciliation is not possible. I do feel like as a Christian, as important as justice is, it's the precondition for where I want us to get to. It's not the final goal where people really feel like they get to bring their whole full authentic selves into community with me and I get to bring my full authentic self to. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it, it does make sense. I think for me, as I hear you talk about it, I don't view that as a destination. Hmm. I view that as the journey itself, which means we'll never reach it, but we're always reaching it. Hmm. The, the journey is in itself the destination. Yeah. You know, and the, the challenge with that is that it never feels like you arrive. Yeah. <laughs> is that it never yeah. feels like you get there. Yeah. Right? But you're, but you're constantly there if you're doing the work. I feel the same way about forgiveness. Like, you know, it's not a, it's not a destination. You don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily get, get to a place where I have forgiven. Like, I'm yeah. constantly forgiving. I'm constantly, you know, there are things that have happened to me that have happened in my life, in my 36 years of living, that I have to forgive every day. Yeah. And doing that work, is helping us continually live into the realization of beloved community. If we do it right, we should never feel like we've arrived. Yeah. We've known each other now for seven years, give or take a month or two. If you had to go back, knowing what you know about me now, and you had to give yourself some advice about entering into this friendship relationship, huh. yeah. what would you tell yourself? I don't know how to say this. Um, laugh more and think less. Hmm. That's probably good advice for anybody who's in a, in a friendship <laughs> with me. <laughs> you have such a joyful spirit. I admire your resolve. I feel like you do a, a tremendous amount of work um, trying to make a difference in so many different areas that you touch, professionally, personally, in your marriage, you know, in your friendships. I enjoy your sense of humor. I, I find myself laughing a lot around you. Let me say, I'm glad that you said that because I use humor for a lot of things. To bring levity to very heavy situations, sometimes just as humor, it's, it's really a staple of, of Samuel White. It's really a part of who I am. And, and sometimes I use it to get a point across, a serious point that... A lot of people might often avoid avoid having a conversation or or making a point. But I'm glad that that you say you have an appreciation for that humor <laughs> because because yeah, it's definitely something that I employ often in friendships, in relationships, in you know a lot of different spaces. So I'm glad that you get it and you're not offended by it. That's what I, I guess that's what I'm saying. No man. <laughs> This probably won't surprise you hearing me say this. I, I live in my head, man. I, I think and overthink and yep. overthink and overthink and overthink everything. Mm -hmm. That's why I know because I do too. <laughs> and my wife tells me all the time. Yep. 
What? What are you talking about? Like, how did you sit there and just come up with all of like all yeah. I said was close the door, you know? And I'm like, did I hurt you? Did I offend you? Like, what happened? Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. So I know. Yeah. 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 I have learned over time that when I shut up and get out of the way, some really wonderful things can can emerge. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why I love your sense of humor is I think it it helps me to just like get the hell out of my own head sometimes. I would definitely have advised myself that he's one of the good ones, that you've come a long way. You still got a long way to go. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> but he's one of the good ones. Sam, this has been a really good conversation, man. I'm grateful. You know, I, we've known each other for a long time, and and I regret that we have not made space and found opportunities for more of these kinds of conversations. Yeah, um, I think know, that's life's fault, though. That's I know, I know. With, <laughs> with with everything that I've had going on the last four years, I think the next decade will be different than the, this previous one, and I look forward to yeah to 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 doing more of that. Well, and I know you know it doesn't matter where I move, doesn't matter what job I'm, I'm doing. I'm gonna be there. I mean, I'm gonna yeah, we I'm gonna, gonna be there. We gonna be there together. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Y'all go ahead and mark your calendars now for the year-end altar call extravaganza coming at you this Thursday at the crack of dawn. If you aren't following us on social media, go ahead and do us a solid. You can follow the Mourners Bench on Twitter and Instagram at YouOnTheBench. You can also follow Theolab Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The handle for Theolab Media is, can you guess it? Theolab Media. That's T-H-E-O-L-A-B, media, on all social media channels. We'll see y'all on Thursday. Y'all know what I say. Peace up. A-Town down. Yeah, 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 yeah.